for listening to this message from the Altar Fellowship. I, uh, I remember as a, a kid going to a church and they'd say, God is good. And what are you supposed to say? That's right. That's right. And, uh, and here's the thing. I said God is good or all the time about 100,000 times in my life. And still, every time I say it, I feel like it's inadequate. I have this sense that no matter how many times I venture into the waters of imagination to discover how good God could be, or, or that I, uh, I venture into my own memory to think about all the different times and all the different ways that God has been good to me, I cannot help but think he's even better than that, that I'm only at the beginning of the beginning. I'm only scratching the surface. I have not yet begun to plumb the depths of his goodness. And, uh, you know, we are uh, experiencing something uncommon at the Altar Fellowship. And I was sharing with the men this morning at Men's Prayer that my, uh, my sort of guiding principle uh, is, is don't fall off. It's like just... God is good, and he wants to bless and favor and prosper these people infinitely more than I do. And so instead of trying to pray and fast God into blessing the altar fellowship, instead of trying to uh, coax or goad him into being good to us, my determination in these last years has been I'm going to I'm going to trade my desire for his. I'm going to trade my passion for his and say, sure, I have a passion for revival, but I think your passion for revival, God, is bigger than mine. And so please don't answer my meager prayers. I want you to do what you want to do because what you have is infinitely better than, than my most audacious requests. And so, um, you know, these last few weeks I have felt have been uh, a demonstration of, of God's sovereign kindness. You know, a couple weeks ago, we ended up canceling uh, a message, this message, in fact, uh, because uh, the Lord released a word about the, the power of the praise of children and how uh, that, that kind of praise has the power to shut Satan's mouth. You remember that day? And we just danced around like wild kids for an hour and a half, and then we went home. It was a Sunday well spent, I think. And then uh, this last week, we um, didn't really plan much of a, a teaching because we were planning to baptize 39 people. And so we baptized 66 people last week. <laughs> because God had plans we didn't know of. And... Uh, and I sort of stood there in amazement. You know, I have this unique privilege to be able to, uh, to know many of you and to know your stories and to know some of what you've walked through. And, and last week as I was baptizing people, I, I know some of what they, some of the journey that they have been on to get to that point uh, and was just uh, overcome, overwhelmed with God's kindness, with his goodness, with his faithfulness to see people that, they themselves were convinced they weren't going to make it. Not just in the church, but maybe not in life. People that had planned and, uh, and desired their own death. People who had considered 
seriously considered suicide. I got to baptize them on Sunday. Couples that had seriously considered divorce, I got to baptize them on Sunday. People who for, for years struggled with addiction, depression, anxiety, with deception regarding their identity in Christ, I got to baptize them on Sunday. And, and I, I just I stand in awe of our great Redeemer. I'm amazed at his faithful love and how enduring and persistent it is. It's, I, uh, you know, I, I do my best to be an effective communicator, but the truth is I stand here every week and I, I use finite words to try to describe the infinite nature and character of God. It's a losing game. Ultimately, I think my message has to be come and see for yourself. I'm doing my best, but I'm not doing good enough. And I don't think I ever will. I want you to come see for yourself. My hope is that your relationship with God wouldn't just be based on stuff you heard Pastor Maddie say. That'll never do. My hope is that I can help provoke you into, uh, into pursuit of your own. And, uh, you know, 15 years ago, um, as I was just getting started in, in ministry, uh, there was a man I really looked up to. I still look up to a man named Dutch Sheets, uh, an awesome man of God, a great teacher, uh, a man that really had a, a mandate on his life for, um, uh, for prayer, for intercession. He, he wrote a book called Intercessory Prayer. That was a book that I read early in ministry that really helped shape and give language to um, what, it, what prayer meant for me. And, uh, and I remember hearing him speak uh, one time uh, around 15 years ago uh, on the relationship between revival and reformation. Now, I wasn't raised in the Pentecostal church. I was raised in a denomination called the Evangelical Free Church, which is like uh, the Baptist church for Dutch people in the Midwest. So it's, if you take the doctrinal statements of the Baptist church and copy and paste them, it, that's, that was us. Um, and so, you know, I remember seeing my mom raise one hand during worship one time, and I thought, this is crazy. She lost her mind, you know, <laughs> never seen anything like this. We believed in the Holy Spirit on paper, but we never talked about the Holy Spirit. We certainly didn't experience God in any meaningful way. We just like read the Bible and we wore khaki pants and we tried not to say too many cuss words. That was kind of what we're just going to wait until we get out of here and go to heaven. And, uh, and so <laughs> Uh, so that was kind of how I was raised. So when, when I, I start hearing people talk about revival, I think, uh, what even is that? You know, I had never heard about revival history. I didn't know about, you know, Azusa Street. I didn't know about Brownsville. I didn't know about Toronto. I didn't know about the Welsh revival, about some of the things that I uh, have studied in the 15 years since then. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like in some ways I, uh, I am privileged to have not grown up worshiping revival. You know, it, it's like you make revival the, the pursuit and you will miss revival. But if you make Jesus your pursuit, you will inherit revival. Right? Um, and so uh, I, th I think many of, of us who maybe were raised in, in charismatic or Pentecostal churches, uh, maybe, maybe revival is an idol that we needed to smash, you know? And... Uh, 
And so we set our hearts early here at the Altar Fellowship to not be people that would chase revival, but to be people who would chase Jesus himself. We want him, his power, his presence. We want him to, to be Lord of our life and Lord of our meetings and Lord of our uh, decision-making processes and Lord of the way that we interact with the community around us. And so uh, we are grateful, truly, um, to see him in sovereignty kissing this house with something so uncommon. And, uh, and I would call it, and, and in fact, we're going to read a passage here when, where uh, Ezra um, prays and he asks if the Lord would send, this is the phrase he uses, I think it's a beautiful one, a measure of revival to the people of Israel. Now this is uh, uh, an interesting uh, phrase because I, I feel like, you know, this word revival, it's, it's like, a, um, I think the etymology of the word is something we, we can lose. You know, we, there's, there's so much historical context that when you hear revival, it can be something as simple as we're having church in a tent for a weekend, right? We're doing church outside this week. That's a revival. You know, we got brother Billy Joe from down the road and he's coming in to do a, a revival for us. And, you know, revival is going to start on Thursday night and it's going to end on Sunday night. And that's our, that's revival. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and I, or, or revival can be something like God showed up at church on Sunday and so we decided to come back Sunday night and it was so powerful Sunday night, we came back Monday. It was so powerful Monday night, we came back Tuesday night and we're in revival now because we extended meetings, right? That's like the sort of the charismatic grid for revival. But what revival really means is that when something that was dead has become alive, Let's take the word revival out for a minute and just define it as resurrection. We, we want to see God's resurrection power demonstrated in the church. We want him to replace dead religion with, with, with vibrancy, life, and color. Uh, today I saw a conga line of little girls dressed in pink weaving its way through the church, and I think that's not dead, right? We've all been in dead churches. I think it's why... Half of us moved from other states to come to this one. It's, I said on Wednesday, I think, we're, the reason we're here is because we're done with normal. God called us, because all of us, I think, have in our hearts a sense of what church ought to be. And, and it's hard to find because there's an industry that has been sort of replicating itself in the place that the Christian church used to occupy. And it's hard to find something that, that isn't industrial anymore. It's hard to find an expression of faith and Christian family that's not industrial anymore. And so I, I think what we need for the church in America is a measure of revival. I think that for whatever reason, God and his sovereignty has brought so many of us here, many of us for the church, but many of us not for the church. We just came to the area for one reason or another. We were born and raised here. We retired here. We, we showed up in this area. God has been assembling this family intentionally and carefully for years. He's had us on a path to this place. And I think he's been doing so because he intended to pour out a measure of revival here on the altar fellowship. And I'm grateful for his resurrection power, the way that it's demonstrated. I'm grateful for the fact that we've come out of dead religion and into this vibrant expression of family and faith that we, we see right now. 
But I, I feel in my spirit uh, a cautionary urge from the Lord to make sure that we don't ride the wave and spend the rest of our life talking about how cool it was for that, that two years we experienced revival. This, I, uh, we are not, we have to be people who are not bound by seasons. I'm grateful for this um, outpouring of, of God's love and kindness and favor and, and blessing and multiplication on this house, but we cannot be people who become a slave to it. We can't be. We have to be, um, oh, let me think, let me explain it like this. The picture that I, I have had in my spirit this morning as I've been uh, praying and preparing is, is this. It's, it's like when the rains come, you have two types of people. When rains come and bring refreshing, you have two types of people. You have one type of people who they, they will follow the rain wherever it goes. And, and they want to be where the rain is. That's where the refreshing is happening. And so they'll follow the rain from, you know, from this conference to that conference and from this revival to that revival. And they're buying tickets to... You know, they were at Asbury every day, you know, and, and they're just waiting for the next thing. And, uh, and so they're, you know, they'll come in, they'll come here for a while because it's, it's raining here at the altar, praise God. And, you know, it feels good. And then they'll get a little bit bored or something and they'll move on to some other place that it's raining. They'll follow the rain wherever it goes. You have some people who will follow the rain wherever it goes. And you have some people who will plant a garden. We have to be people who plant a garden. We cannot, we cannot allow ourselves to fall into the trap of saying, oh, wow, look at what God is doing right now without allowing it to reshape the way that we live our lives on a daily basis. And what, uh, what Dutch Sheets talked about 15 years ago that became so foundational and uh, fundamental for us is he talked about the relationship between revival and reformation. Now, at the time, I had never experienced revival in any sense. I was only just beginning to hear about it. Now we're, I'm looking at it, sitting in the pews of this church right now. And what are we going to do about it? Are we going to pat ourselves on the back because we got one? You know, we're going to high five each other and you know, spend the next 20 years bragging about that time we went from 350 to 1,200 members in the course of 11 months. That's what has happened in the last 11 months at the Altar Fellowship. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, we could spend the next 20 years talking. About, I could write a book about how to grow your church and it wouldn't help anybody do anything, you know. And, uh, <laughs> and we, could, we could be very proud of ourselves for this thing. Or, or we could say, God, thank you for sending the rain. I have to make sure that it doesn't end today. I have to make sure that this doesn't just change this doesn't just bring us back from dead, but that this changes the way that we live with this second chance at life. That we, that we are not only engaged in revival, but we're engaged also in reformation. We are going to be a people that enjoy the wind of revival, but we're also going to hoist our sail and we're going to go where it leads us. Does this make sense? We have to be people that understand both revival and reformation. I'm grateful for the revival but I, I remember, I've told this story before. I think it's worth repeating. I remember a friend of mine that was a part of a substantial revival here in the United States. It's one um, that, that you would recognize if I mentioned the name of, of this church. 
Uh, millions of people were impacted by what happened there. Many preachers that are still very influential today sort of got their start at this revival. Over the course of seven years, millions of people flew from all over the world. The sick were healed. The dead were raised. Countless lives were transformed. Many, many tens or maybe hundreds of thousands of people were born again because of this revival. And a friend of mine took over the, uh, the position of, of lead pastor of this church about 20 years after, uh, maybe 15 years after that revival ended. And I said, what was it like coming into this legendary church, this legendary ministry? And he said, well, what I came into was a church building that could seat 1,100 people with an attendance of less than 80 who were only there because they were delusional enough to think it was going to be like it was in, in the 90s again. They didn't care about Jesus. They just wanted another revival. And $10 million of debt, a church that was planted right in the middle of the worst neighborhood I've ever been in in my life. Prostitution, drug houses, uh, crime everywhere. Everything around our church is falling apart. And he said, we received this revival, but we did not build on the sovereign dispensation of the kindness of God that we experienced. We just basked in the glow of it for seven years and then it ended and there was no lasting impact on our community, on our church. In fact, this thing choked all the faith and the faithful leaders out of our church. We were so focused on the crowd that we forgot to feed the sheep that God had given us. So they all moved off somewhere where they would actually get fed. And then by the time the crowds dissipated, there was barely any church left to speak of. And so um, I have always sort of kept that in my back pocket as a cautionary tale of how easy it is to get caught up in, wow, God is growing this ministry. Wow, look at all the wonderful, glorious things God is doing. People are getting saved. You know, people are being healed. There's lives that are being changed and transformed. That's wonderful. But we have to be people that, that allow revival to carry us into reformation. We have to be people that allow revival to carry us into reformation. We rejoice in the spirit of revival, the measure of revival that God is pouring out at the altar fellowship. But we have to be reformation-minded people. Okay? And so um, I, I'm going to teach today uh, out of the book of Ezra primarily. Uh, Ezra and maybe a little bit out of Nehemiah. Uh, now these two books in the Hebrew Bible, they're, they're just one book. Um, called Ezra. And uh, to give you some, some context here, the, after Solomon, after King Solomon died, uh, the, the nation of Israel was split into two kingdoms, the, the northern kingdom with 10 tribes and the southern kingdom with two tribes. And uh, eventually the northern kingdom was taken away uh, into captivity uh, by the king of Assyria. And, uh, and they, to this day, are, are, are no more. Uh, but the southern kingdom, they were taken into captivity by Babylon. And, uh, uh, and in Babylon, they were enslaved and uh, uh, oppressed. But eventually, uh, Babylonian kings had their hearts awakened or softened by the Lord. And they started to send delegates uh, from the, uh, the, the Jewish people from Babylon back to Jerusalem or back to, to the land of Judah and the, the capital city of Jerusalem to rebuild the city that had been devastated by the Babylonian siege that the prophet Jeremiah spent 40 years um, uh, uh, preparing the people for. 
or failing to prepare the people for, I suppose. Uh, and, uh, and so this is sort of where the book of Ezra picks up. The uh, half of the uh, people of Israel, they've gone to Assyria never to be seen again. The other half, they're in captivity in Babylon. And then uh, the, uh, uh, the, the winds begin to change. Jerusalem is decimated, but God begins to prepare his people to return back to this land, back to this city, Jerusalem, and, and the land that he had, um, he had promised them. And so what happens is that there's a, a delegation of men in um, Ezra chapters 1 and 2 that are sent by King Cyrus uh, back to Jerusalem to begin the process of rebuilding the city. Uh, and leading this group are, uh, are two men, Zerubbabel, uh, I guess I should say three men, Zerubbabel uh, and, and uh, uh, Nehemiah. And uh, sorry, Zerubbabel and Ezra, Nehemiah um, comes later, but Zerubbabel and, and, uh, and Ezra. And, um, and what happens is that um, uh, they show up in the city. It's been totally destroyed. The temple has been uh, uh, torn down. The, the city walls have been broken down and burned. And this is what they do first. The first thing that they do is uh, in Ezra uh, chapter three, verses three and four. Uh, this is the first thing that they do. Uh, it says, um, I'll give you some context. In, in, uh, in verse two of Ezra chapter three, it starts there. It says, then Jeshua, the son of uh, Josadak and his brethren, the priests and Zerubbabel, the son of uh, Shealtiel and his brethren arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses the man of God, though the fear had come upon them because the people of those countries, because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases and they offered burnt offerings to the Lord, both the morning and evening burnt offerings. Now, I, I want to stop there to give you uh, a little bit of, of context here. So th these men have been sent by King Cyrus back to begin the process of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. And so what they're doing is, I think, in some ways, very similar to what we are doing. They've been sent to build a place of worship, to build a community around that place of worship. And uh, that, I think, is what we've been sent to do. Anybody agree with that? Yeah, that's what we're here to do. And, and I, I'm going to show you this morning that they, they, they took an approach uh, that included three distinct steps. And the first step, the one that we just read, is this. What do they do first? So they show up, and the people in, in that area are hostile toward them. They don't want them there. In fact, all through the process of rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the city and rebuilding the wall, people are attacking them. People are accusing them. There's a constant threat of opposition, both externally and internally. And, uh, and so they, 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 they have to come up with a strategy. What's the strategy that God gives them? They start not by building walls to protect themselves, not by building a temple in which to worship. They start by building an altar. Step one to reformation. What they're doing is reforming the city of Jerusalem. Step one in, in, in the process of reformation is this, build an altar. Step one is this, build an altar. This is what happened. Though fear, verse three, though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases and they offered burnt offering on it to the Lord, both morning and evening burnt offerings. 
And so this is where they start. Understand, there's still no wall to protect them. There's still no homes for them to live in. At this point, these people are wandering. At this point, these people are exposed and they're vulnerable, but they determine in their hearts the first priority needs to be an altar. Their first priority, if they're going to rebuild or reform the city of Jerusalem, has to be an altar. Now, there are two points that I would make here. I want to help us define an altar in, the way, in a way that we can grab a hold of, okay? So uh, it would be easy to say, well, you know, an altar is a, it's a, a you know, gold-covered platform or it's a stone platform. It's a, a place where animal sacrifices are, are made or, or where animus, animal sacrifices are laid to be burned. And sure, all of those things um, could be true. But I think even more critical than any of the practical definitions of an altar. An altar is, I think, most fundamentally, it is a, uh, the establishment of a common core value of honor for God. Here's what I mean. This is the place where we sacrifice, where I bring my, my, the first fruits of my field, the first fruits of my cattle, and I lay it down. This is the place where I bring my best my first, my highest, my most precious, my valuable. This is my, my most valuable. This is the place where I lay that all down. And in establishing the altar, what Zerubbabel did for the people was he established to them the most important thing, more important than you having a, a roof over your head, more important than you having walls around the city to keep you safe from invaders, more important than that there be a, a roof and walls around this altar is that we establish our highest priority, our first priority is the exaltation of God through sacrifice. We build an altar. You know, the reason that we called this church the Altar Fellowship is because when we began, we had a vision that um, that we, as a, a, as a community, would share a common core value of continual sacrifice to the Lord. That we would come here to, to die. That we'd come here to lay down that which is precious to us. Like, like Paul shared earlier, that we would lay down that which is familiar to us, that which is comfortable to us, that which we've walked with for years, that which has become a part of our identity, that we would come here and we'd lay it all down, that this place would represent for us a place where God's fire consumes everything temporary about us so that only that which is eternal can remain. That's the dream, that we would be a people that carry each other to the altar and continually, continually deny ourselves so that we can exalt him. And so this is how we're going to define an altar today. It is a core value of honor for God. So the first thing they build is a core value of honor for God. Before they build a temple, before they build a city, before they build a wall, they build a core, they establish a core value of honor for God. And listen to this. They set the altar in verse 3 of Ezra 3. It says, they set the altar on its bases and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening offerings. Both the morning and evening offerings. Can I tell you, uh, I think I've told you this already, but I, I want you to know that in many ways, I, I think that this is a, a, a beautiful 
seed of faith or revelation or insight for us to be able to understand why we are going to do what we're going to do for the first 10 days of 2024. For those of you that maybe haven't been around or haven't heard me talk about this, the first 10 days of the new year, we are going to be having morning, noon, and night prayer and intercession and worship here in the sanctuary at the Altar Fellowship. We are building an altar. We are, hear this, we're building an altar to the Lord. We are building a core value of honor for the Lord. And so as we get together over those 10 days, morning and and noon and night, we're going to spend hours every day continually offering ourselves, offering our time, offering our voice, offering our our bodies as sacrifices to the Lord. Say, I could be doing any number of a, a million other things, but today I've come to lay down on the altar before you. And we're doing this because we have to establish the altar before we can begin to build the temple. We have to build the temple before we can begin to rebuild the city around it. And now, that brings me to the second point. So the first thing they do when they come to the city, Zerubbabel leads the charge and he rebuilds the altar. And what's the, so the first point when it comes to how do we, uh, what are the three steps to effective reformation? Step one is build an altar. Step two is this, build a temple. Now, I, I don't think that it's too much of a stretch to say that the closest thing we may have to a temple is like the church. It's a place that fits more than one person where you can come to experience who God is, right? Has anybody got a problem Yeah, that's where I understand our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, right? And so, uh, and there's the whole like, you don't have to go to church to be the church sort of thing, but we're just going to be more mature (laughs) than that. And uh, if you have an issue with it, talk to anybody in the room or read your Bible. Um, Like it's the the temple, it's it's a building where people come together to, to experience God. The church is a, a building where people come together to experience God. And so the first step is they, they build an altar, and the second step is that they build a temple. Now, uh, the temple I would define as the community that revolves around the altar. If the altar is the core value of honor for God, then the temple is the community that revolves around that altar. And um, I, I think this is an interesting point here. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, it's worth making right now. Uh, I think this is an interesting point here. There are many ministries that get this backwards. They, they think, I'm going to build a temple, and then eventually I'll build an altar. That is to say, I'm going to build a church, and then eventually I will establish a core value of honor for God. But first, we have to be seeker-friendly, and first, we have to have a building, and first, we need to get a worship team and a live stream, and you know, we have a, a, a parking team and a youth ministry. We have to pull together all of these pieces. We've got to build a temple, and then eventually, once we have the temple built, then we'll build an altar inside of it. That's backwards. If you try to build a temple before you have an altar, you're never going to be able to successfully do either. There are, there are churches empty of God's presence because they, they tried to build a temple before they built an altar. There's, 
Countless churches empty or devoid of God's presence because they tried to build a temple before they built an altar. You cannot build a temple before you build the altar because a common value of honor for God is the only thing that will make the temple around the altar worth building. If you don't have God's, God's presence falls on the altar. God's, God's fire falls on the place where we lay down things that are important to us. Where people honor God above their own possessions. Like that's what the altar represents. God sends his fire to fall on that altar. God sends his presence to dwell at that altar. And if we don't establish that altar effectively, then it does not matter how beautiful the temple is. People may come together, but God will not be there unless there's an altar. And so you start with the altar, and then when the altar is established, then you build around it a temple. Let's read this. In Ezra chapter 3, I'll start in verse 10 of Ezra chapter 3. Verse 10 of Ezra 3, it starts with this. It says, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, uh, to praise the Lord, according to the ordinance of, of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and, and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's house uh, heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of the temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. And so what you have is young men shouting and old men weeping as they pour the foundation of a new temple. Uh, this is, I think, a great summation of the altar fellowship, a lot of days, honestly, you have young people, <laughs> you have people shout, some people shouting and some people weeping, right? There's this, I think this, this sort of intense uh, response, this, this visceral expression of, uh, of like unfiltered human emotion as we see the, 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 the establishment of a place to host the presence of God, a place where men and women can come together to encounter him, to experience him, and to enjoy him. And so you see both young and old, those who are new to all this and those who are here the first time, who are overcome with emotion, some shouting, dancing, clapping, running around, and some weeping and wailing over all that they have been through. They saw this temple torn to pieces before. Now I wonder how many of us can relate to those old men who saw the first temple built and then destroyed. And they remember how high their hope was the first time they got into church and they thought this is going to be the place that I meet with God. And then religion or moral failure or toxic leadership tore that temple to pieces. And it's like hard for you to see someone try to rebuild something similar. Like how, you know, how many people have come into this church hesitant about me, about other pastors or leaders in the church, hesitant about church itself, because you know what? I saw people try that in the past all it did was break my heart, man. My, my hope was destroyed. Is this, is this speaking to anybody? Uh, it takes courage. It takes courage to try again. 
And this is what we see in Zerubbabel, and this is what we see in the, uh, the priests and the Levites, the old men that were there the first time the temple was built, who are mourning in this passage in Ex- Exodus, uh, sorry, Ezra chapter 3, who are weeping in Ezra chapter 3. I can only imagine that their emotions were complicated, to say the least. Now, I, I want to jump straight into, into uh, the, the very next verse, Ezra 4, uh, 1. It says this, now, when the adversaries, everybody say adversaries, remember this. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin, those are the two tribes in the southern kingdom of Judah who were taken into exile in Babylon and who have now come back, uh, some of whom have now come back. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. And we have sacrificed to him since the days of uh, Esau Haddon, king of Assyria, who who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel said to them, you may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Okay. Um, Who were these people that came? Everybody say adversaries. And what they said was, let us build with you. Can I... Can I give you a high-level bit of leadership advice? Not everyone who offers to build with you is your friend. Don't I know it? Not everyone who offers to build with you is a friend. They may look like a friend. They may talk like a friend. They may speak the language and wear the clothes. And, you know, maybe they came here to the altar from some other cool ministry that has done some good things. I'll tell you what, if you come and tell me that you came from some big mega ministry that reaches lots of people and, and, uh, and is amazing, that's like strike one against you when you show up here. Like, that's not, that's not a good thing. <laughs> and not that those things are bad. I just, uh, I don't want to have to compete with Bethel, you know, every Sunday morning. Like, I want you to, to, let's just keep our eyes on Jesus, you know, because if we're competing with Bethel, they're going to win. <laughs> So, uh, so the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin, they heard that they had come back and they said, hey, let us build with you. Um, understand this. Not everyone who wants to build with you is a friend. Be vigilant. Be discerning. This is not a question. Understand me. This is not a question of whether or not someone is a good person. Whether they should have a, a hand in what God has called you to do. It's not a question of whether they're a good person. Or, or, or whether they're, they're evil or their motives are, uh, are mingled. It's about whether they see God's vision for the assignment on your life. It's to, to me, like there have been plenty of, of wonderful people who have come here to the altar who just didn't see the vision. They, they couldn't see what the Lord had, has given me to build. And so as much as I love and admire and respect them, I can't let them put their hands on this because they don't know what it's supposed to be because they haven't seen the vision. The interesting thing, and this is uh, uh, one of the, the ways that God in his infinite wisdom protects us. The interesting thing is I've had people move here to join this church and then leave the church a, a couple weeks or a couple months later because I did not immediately hire them. Which is like, thank God I did not immediately hire them, you know? Uh, and so sometimes it, the, hey, wait till you get the vision. You need to see the vision God's given us. It started in my living room. So, 
if you don't know the, the vision God gave us before it started in the living room, just wait till you can catch that vision so you know what the end goal is supposed to look like. You need to st- stick with the, 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 the contractor for long enough that you get a peek at the blueprints before you start throwing bricks on mortar. Does that make sense? Is that an allegory that makes sense for anybody? Okay. <laughs> understand this is not an indictment against people who don't see the vision. There's wonderful people who I love and admire and respect who just don't see what we see. And that's okay. Uh, but it is to say, if, if you don't see the vision, you cannot build. You, you cannot, that doesn't mean you can't attend. doesn't mean you can't receive, but it does mean that you cannot build what God has called us to build. And, uh, uh, and, and I think another point about this is that they, uh, continued, Zerubbabel and Ezra and the leaders, they continued to, um, to face adversity, not just from these adversaries, but from uh, uh, not just even from other nations, but even some Jews came and said, this isn't going to work. You guys aren't doing it right. You're not doing it the way that we would be doing it. And I think it's critical that we, if we're going to, to build the way the Father has called us to build, we're going to have to be people that see the vision and that cling to the vision against criticism, against skepticism, and against opposition. Against criticism, against skepticism, and against opposition every step of the way. And so they, they face difficulty, but eventually they finalize the rebuilding of the temple. God, uh, during this time, as they're working to, to rebuild the temple, God raised up the prophets Haggai and Zechariah that would help um, encourage the people and, and help them remember the promises of God. Now, finally, the temple is restored. And we'll go to Ezra chapter six. In Ezra chapter six, uh, verses 16 and 17, this is what it says. It says, then the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the descendants of the captivity celebrated the dedication of this house of God. Something about that phrase, the descendants of the captivity. I wonder how many of us can, can relate to that. You know, how many of us were, were raised by parents who were enslaved by addiction, by religion, by like dead religion, legalism? How many of us were raised by parents that were slaves of, of the system of the world? And um, what a privilege it is for us to be able to, to come back as descendants of the captivity and to build something pure in the eyes of the Lord. The rest of the descendants of the captivity celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy and they offered sacrifices at the dedication of this house of God. 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs and as a sin offering for all of Israel, 12 male goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. Verse 18 says they assigned the priests to their divisions and the Levites to their divisions over the service of God in Jerusalem as it is written in the book of Moses. Um, I I want you to to get this. Now, uh, it may be bulls and rams and lambs and goats, but the way that the temple gets built is that everybody gives. You know, I talked about it this morning. It's like, we don't get to where we are today without those who have given in the past. And it may not be as much as the person next to you. It may not be as much as you dream of, of giving someday. But without the radical generosity of 
the sons and daughters of this house, without the radical generosity of those who do see the vision, those who do dream the dream, we don't get to where we are today and we do not get to where we're going without those of you who determine in your hearts in the weeks and months ahead to, um, to give of your own treasure, of your own abundance, of your own surplus, to give of your own resources into the collective that the Lord is establishing here. This temple never gets built without the radical generosity of God's people surrounding it. And so, so everybody gives as the temple is rebuilt. And then uh, Ezra arrives with another group. The temple's rebuilt. They're worshiping in the temple. Everything's good now, right? If you've ever read the Old Testament, <laughs> it's not. It's never good for long. Not when there's people involved. <laughs> That's kind of the main theme. Uh, so Ezra arrives in, in Ezra chapter 9. Sorry, he arrives in Ezra uh, chapter 7 and, uh, uh, and finds that everything is bad. Immediately, they, re, they build the altar, they build the temple, and immediately everybody falls back into sin. The temple's restored in Ezra chapter 6. Ezra then arrives with another group, finds that the people have already fallen into idolatry and they've inter, intermarried with pagan women. Can I, let me make a, Let's take a detour for a second and tell you this. I have never seen anything pull people off of the narrow path of obedience to God more effectively, more radically, and more quickly than uh, ill-advised romance. It is astonishing to me the number of people who are burning for Jesus until some handsome man comes along and then we never hear from her again. She doesn't care about Jesus. She doesn't care about people who led her to Jesus. She doesn't care about the great lengths that we've gone to to protect her from guys just like that one she's dead. I cannot tell you the amount of times I've seen this happen. To awesome, amazing, wonderful, wise, strong, capable, spirit-filled people. They get some attention from somebody and this idol of marriage drags them kicking and, kicking and screaming away from God's plan and purpose for their life. This is what happens. The, all these guys, they rebuild the temple supernaturally. They have returned back from exile. This is what Jeremiah prophesied two generations earlier. They're living in this reality. Their people were taken to Babylon and they've come back now out of Babylonian captivity. This is happening. God is moving on behalf of our people. We rebuilt the altar. We're making sacrifices according to the law of Moses. We rebuilt the temple. We're worshiping the Levites are ministering the temple again. God is on the move. And then they look over there and golly she looks good now I know I know God's been good to us but you know she might just be worth risking it all for you know and so they they risk it all and and this delegation of leaders who dreamed the dream, they saw the vision, they built the temple, they immediately start marrying pagan women and worshiping their, their gods. 
Can I tell you, for those of you who are single, do not settle. I'm like, you, you, can, you can settle on how much hair he has or, you know, what his waist size might be. You can compromise on bank account, but you cannot compromise on biblical character. You can't, if they don't push you closer to Jesus on days when you're weak or tired, they are not worth your time. Okay. I'm trying to, I'm telling you. I'm trying to save myself hours of sorrow. I was going to say I'm trying to save you. It's really, this is for me. Like, I don't want to have to. I've done lost too much sleep over some of y'all, you know. Trying to convince yourself this is God's person for you. And it's like, yeah, everybody else can see it's not. Um, y'all hear that? Young people, looking at you, Xander. I know the girls are going crazy for you, buddy. <laughs> he said, "Don't come back with a girlfriend from Thailand. We don't need that." <laughs> we, uh... <laughs> and so Ezra, and I actually love Ezra's response here. In uh, in Ezra chapter nine, he comes back and he finds the people in sin. They've you know, married these women and they started worshiping their gods. And then, uh, then it says this. I'm just going to read this passage to you. I think it's so powerful. Ezra 9, it's like the first eight verses. This is what, what happens. It says, when these things were done, the leaders came to me. This is Ezra speaking. The leaders came to me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, Hivites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. So he hears the bad report. And then he says this. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe. I plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. Uh, how many people... I know some of the people on my staff have done that exact thing a few times, like ripping hair out of their head and sitting down like, what in the world are these people doing? Y'all ever see uh, Toy Story 4 when, uh, when Forky is like convinced that he's trash, you know, and he keeps trying to jump into the trash and, and Woody has to be like, no, Andy loves you, you matter. And Forky's like, I'm trash. And he just jumps into the trash. That's exactly what it's like being a pastor. I'm telling you, it's a half of the people in this church. You're like, I'm trash. And it's like, you're not. You're, his name is written on you. You're important. You matter. You're not, you're not trash. <laughs> you're not trash. That's the, that's going to be the title of this message on the podcast. You're not trash. Uh, <laughs> We need some, yeah. So anyway, I got some bracelets that say you're not trash. But no, I'm just. <laughs> so, uh, so Ezra, he sits down. When I heard this, I tore my garment and my robe. I plucked out some of the, the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. 
Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive. So I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. So he sits there all day, just stunned. How could this happen? At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and, and spread out my hands to the Lord, my God. And I said, oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. I, I want you to hear this for what it is. This is intercession. If you've ever heard the, the word intercession or intercess, the phrase intercessory prayer, this is what it looks like. Ezra did not marry an Amorite woman. Ezra did not engage in this sin. And certainly he could have gotten up on his soapbox and said, how dare you? How could you? You all messed up and I would never have done something like this. But he didn't do that. He, he jumped right into the, the group that had sinned. He jumped right into the mess with them and said, God, forgive us. He became the voice of repentance for people who had engaged in sin he individually had never engaged in. This is intercessory prayer, 101. It is, it is to pray uh, for mercy or forgiveness on behalf of someone else, that you actually can take their burden on for them and you can begin to beseech the Lord on their behalf as a, a, media, a, a mediator or an, an, an intercessor between the, the two parties. Uh, and so this is what he does. Ezra, he, he continues on. He says, since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty and for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the land, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation as it is this day. And now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. And so he's... he's praying on behalf of these people. Now, he didn't engage in this sin. He didn't compromise the way that they compromised, but he's, he's linked himself with these people in their compromise, and he's repenting on their behalf. And, uh, and so he, uh, he, he gets down Ezra 9. The whole chapter is, is powerful. I think you should read it later if you're interested. But then in, in, Exodus, in Ezra 10, verse 1, it says this, and, and I think this is really I think this is really powerful. As, as he finishes praying, Ezra chapter 9 is, is all him uh, interceding or praying for the people in front of the temple, weeping uh, brokenhearted because of their sin. Um, Ezra 10 verse 1, it says this, Now while Ezra was praying, hear me, praying, not preaching. Ezra didn't go door to door whipping people for their rebellion. He didn't hold protest signs telling people they were going to go to hell. Ezra tore his clothes and he took the posture of an intercessor, weeping on behalf of people who, who didn't weep over their sin, mourning on behalf of people who did not mourn over their sin, repenting on behalf of people who had not yet repented over their sin. He took the place of an intercessor. And there, uh, after he, he prays all through chapter 9, in chapter 10 of Ezra, this is how it starts. It says, now while Ezra was praying and while he was confessing, weeping, and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel. 
for the people wept very bitterly. Now, I, I want again to, um, to stir in your spirit the possibility uh, for what God might do during this 10 days of prayer, this 10 days of devotion that, that we've set aside for the beginning of this next year. Because uh, he, didn't, he didn't preach to the people. He interceded for the people. And in interceding for the people, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel. The people, their hearts were sovereignly awakened by God. There are going to be days when we gather together, we pray for an hour just for the, just for the, the leaders of our nation. When we intercede for them, when we repent on their behalf, when we confess on their behalf, when we weep and mourn on their behalf, we are going to take the mantle of intercessors. And I'm, I'm convinced that intercession can change history. And so Ezra, he prays for the people, he intercedes for the people. And a crowd gathers and the people begin to repent. They go on to say in, in verse 2, we have trespassed against, our, uh, we trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the people of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives, those who have been born to them according to the advice of my master and those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. This is so insane to me. Because what they do next, there's a whole section in my Bible, and I've got the title of the section circled with two exclamation marks next to it, because the section says, pagan wives put away. These guys literally get together and send their wives packing. They're just like, sorry, I should have never married you. Um, and they send them off, which is nuts. Um, and I'm not saying you should do that, like if, you're, you know, if your spouse isn't cutting it, that you should send them packing. But I am saying that if you've joined yourself to something outside of God's will, that, that no uncomfortable or awkward situation is too much for you to get back into the fear of the Lord. Like, break up with her. Break up with him. Delete that phone. I know you've been friends since elementary school, but that person you've joined yourself to, who's, who you find yourself worshiping at, at the foot of their idols you should probably block and delete that number before lunch today. You're, this is pastor talk. All right? Like, I love you. It's okay to send away those wives that you joined yourself to in error. And so, so they build first the altar, and then they build the temple, and then uh, Ezra gathers the people and he reads the whole law. He reads the whole Torah to the people. And uh, after they send these wives away, they recenter themselves on the promises and the priorities of God. And then the people begin the long process. Nehemiah comes and he helps the people begin the long process of rebuilding the, the houses and the, the wall uh, around the city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah, he's a, a cupbearer at the time to uh, Artaxerxes. He hears about what's happening. That he knows that the wall is torn down and the people of Jerusalem are vulnerable. And so he makes a request and he ends up coming back to Jerusalem, leading a delegation back to Jerusalem with builders and funding and, uh, and a vision from the Lord to rebuild the wall. And, uh, and this is the third point of Reformation. It is only after 
the altar and the temple are built, that they begin to rebuild the city. This is where I see pastors in America get it precisely wrong all the time. They show up in a new city to plant a church and they think, we're going to start doing outreach in the city. We're going to reach this city. I'm going to go sit down with the mayor and, you know, we're going to do a, a, you know, a, a cupcake giveaway at the city park and, uh, and we're going to engage with, you know, we're going to go show up at the, you know, get a float in the downtown parade on the 4th of July and, uh, you know, you have all these ideas like we're going to reach the city. We're going to build a city. It's like, don't bother building a city until you have a temple for them to come worship in. And don't bother building a temple until you have an altar for them to come sacrifice at. Many churches have given themselves to, to what we would call outreach, city building, community development, but they don't have a temple and they don't have an altar. And it's a waste of everyone's time. And so if we're going to be people that capitalize on revival by faithfully stewarding reformation, we will have to first build an altar and then build a temple and then build a wall. First build an altar and then build a temple and then build a wall to protect and preserve the sacredness of what the Lord is doing here and then also to make sure that everyone who wants to come can find their way in. Uh, you know, I've been um, having conversations and uh, going back and forth about how I feel about what are we going to do, multiple services, or we're going to, you know, rip the roof off and add a second story and start a second campus somewhere where we have like a live video teaching. <laughs> it's going to be empty. No one's going there. <laughs> um, we're not doing any of those. I don't know. I, we're not moving until, until God speaks. If we go to two services, you'll know it's because God spoke it. If we plant a second campus or launch a second campus somewhere, you'll know it's because God spoke it. I don't, I don't know where we're going, but I know that we're not going without him. And I think what we're doing now is, is uh, I think we, we have built an altar. We've, we've established a common value or core value of honor for God. We are not a people that come together once a week to play church. Yahweh has assembled this people because we are a people that aren't afraid to sacrifice. We're not afraid to submit. We're not afraid to say yes to whatever he says, whenever and, and however he says it. He's got our unconditional yes. We are a people who built an altar. I think we're still in the process of building a temple that is the community around that altar. And, uh, and I, um, I'm confident to say that in the years ahead, the Lord is going to teach us precisely how to build a city and a wall around this temple. And I think that looks like you walking in excellence and integrity in your workplace. I think that looks like you raising your kids to love the Lord and to, to carry him everywhere they go, walking into their public school full of the Holy Spirit on assignment from God. I think it looks like you walking into work on Monday morning, 15 minutes early, full of joy, 
full of joy and passion, lifting up everybody around you and, and, and being the wind and the sails of everybody that, that is blessed enough to work with you. I think it looks like um, some of you in this room finally saying yes to the still small voice of the Holy Spirit to start that business, to run for office, and to say yes to God's unction in your heart to, um, to carry what you're finding at the altar in the temple out into the city as we build a wall around this beautiful thing the Lord has, has done in this place. Amen. I love you. I believe in you. And it's a real privilege to be a part of this reformation. The Lord is sovereignly inspiring right here in Johnson City. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for this amazing family and for the privilege that it is to, to serve here at the altar. Um, Yahweh, we say, uh, we want to see you build what you want to build. We want to see your kingdom established here. So God, give us grace to faithfully rebuild the altar. Give us grace to faithfully rebuild the, the temple. Give us grace to faithfully steward the construction of, of a city and a wall around this thing, Lord. We, we thank you that you've given us not just revival, not just a season of revival, God, but you've given us a, a life of reformation to, to build, to expand, and to advance the, the reality of your kingdom. Lord, teach us to honor you. Teach us to love your word. And teach us to demonstrate your heart to a world that so desperately needs to see you. God, we bless you and we honor you. And we thank you for all that you have done and all that you're about to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, uh, one more thing before we dismiss. Uh, this week I had a conversation with a friend of mine who is the... Uh, president of a Christian university up near Chicago. And, uh, and he was sort of lamenting to me this reality that he is dealing with. Over the last few months, he's been talking with several Christian university presidents, Bible college uh, leaders and administrators. And he said, they're all experiencing the same thing simultaneously. And what they're experiencing is, is sharply over the last five years, but really over the last 15 or 20 years, they have seen a substantial decline in biblical literacy in their incoming classes. He would say that probably near 50% of the kids at his Christian university come into his Christian university not knowing what Noah's Ark is, not knowing about David and Goliath. They don't know the books of the Bible or how to find one. They don't know the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Basic, elementary, biblical literacy. Um, I don't get to pastor every church in America but I do get to pastor this one. We will not raise kids like that. I, uh, I'm thankful for conga lines and prophetic words that we got kids laying hands on the sick and crying at the altar. They have to know the Bible too. Like we can't, we can't just be like, look how mature our kids are. They dance when it's time to dance. It's like, that our kids haven't arrived. We have to teach them the scriptures. And, and I'm saying we because it's not me. Like I'll teach you the Bible and so that you can teach your kids the Bible. That's, is that a, a good deal? Uh, 
And so parents, fathers, study the scriptures with your children. The stuff, you don't have to be a scholar to teach your kid about Noah's Ark. You don't have to be a biblical scholar to teach your kid about David and Goliath. Just open the Bible and tell them the stories that you remember from when you were a kid. Because one generation from now, they will be in charge. And uh, if things keep going the way that we're going, we're going to be in big trouble. Thank God for the kids at the altar who are going to carry the torch for generations to come. Amen. And so um, I love you. I believe in you. I'm grateful for every one of you. Thank you for being here this morning. We will see you Wednesday night at 630. Bless you guys. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to this service from the Altar Fellowship. We pray that you are impacted powerfully by this message. If you have been personally affected by our ministry and you would like to partner with the altar as we work to establish the kingdom of heaven, please visit our website at www.thealtar.org.